Welcome to the Fire and Soul Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Sorrow. I believe in taking massive, inspired action from an awakened soul. This show is a weekly dose of spiritual principles, personal development, and success strategies for creating an epically aligned life. Here's to your wildest dreams coming true with less hustle, grit and grind, more flow, ease, and grace. I'm the founder of the Live Video Mastery Academy, a TV host, speaker, best-selling author, and proud fur mama, and I'll be sharing real talks with successful entrepreneurs, thought leaders, best-selling authors, spiritual luminaries, and high-performance experts in this unfiltered, transformational, and soul-centered podcast. Things are about to get real. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Fire and Soul Podcast. You are in for a treat today. This is, oh my goodness, let me just give you a little bit of a breakdown of our very special guest today. Sharp, frank, and fearless, Cheryl Fraser, PhD, is a Buddhist psychologist and sought-after relationship expert. Dr. Cheryl has helped thousands of couples jumpstart their love life and create passion that lasts a lifetime. A highly successful and awarded Fulbright scholar, she's conducted extensive research on sexual behavior and what causes love relationships to succeed or fail. She combines cutting edge love and sex therapy with mindfulness to help couples cut through resistance and ignite the connection and sizzle they think they've lost. Cheryl's approach to life and to helping others is based in her practice of meditation and Buddhism, which she has studied for 25 years. When Cheryl is not in India, Tibet, or at a three-month silent meditation retreat, she lives on Vancouver Island with her man and their menagerie, practicing the passion she preaches. It's such an honor to have you on this show, my love. Welcome to the Fire and Soul Podcast, Dr. Cheryl. Absolutely a delight. I feel on fire in my soul with you. So (laughs) let's do this. This is so cool. I want to just let my listeners know, first of all, a little disclaimer at the top. You and I were chatting before I hit record and you said, listen, how sexually graphic can I get when I'm giving examples or really showing how to increase the intimacy and sexuality between couples and or yourself if you happen to be single? I was like, go for it. It's free here. However, I'm saying this to you, my listener, if you have kids in the car or if there's someone that you would be concerned about hearing some of that, this might be a good time to put on your earbuds. But still, I mean, I want to give a little background of how you came to be. So one of my best friends, Jocelyn Coom, who mm-hmm. is head of business development for Jack Canfield and all of that's happening over there. She and I met through Tony Robbins events, which I know we share another thing in common there, Dr. Cheryl. But she wrote to me about six weeks ago and she says, oh, Oh my goodness, you have to have Dr. Cheryl on your show. She's only told me to invite two people or have two people ever. And, and so I, for you, I was like, yes, no brainer. It comes, you know, without even any explanation or background. And then I find out you've been on Tony Robbins podcast. And then you were one of his guest keynote speakers at his relationship program for the Platinum Partners just last year in Maui. What a treat to have you on the fire and soul. Oh, thank you. It's a treat for me as well. I've been listening to you and I love your guests. I love your approach and I love what you're doing for this community around really saying there aren't any limits that we don't impose on ourselves. That doesn't mean it's easy and you never give kind of platitude like, oh, just believe in it, manifest it, nonsense. Like you're keeping it real and challenging people. And I just, I applaud what you're doing, Michelle. So thank you. It's it's lovely to meet you as well. 
Oh, thank you. You know, I feel like I have met a kindred sister on the path. Um, the reason why I say that, and my listeners will totally get it, is that within two seconds of knowing you, you, you drop the F-bomb, you said <laughs> dick, and I was like, okay, let's go. Okay, the other thing that I want to talk about is obviously we're going to talk about, you know, how to develop intimacy, thrill, and sensuality, which are the key points that you talk about, and how to avoid marriage incorporated, and we're going to go there in a moment. We're going to talk about some highlights of your best-selling book, The Buddha's Bedroom, which is so awesome. I have a copy right here. I recommend you all get a copy, and I will share that link in my resources on my site. But I want to let you know, for you single folk just like me, right, that you are not alone in this conversation. We're going to cover everyone. So you're gay, gay, straight, transgender, in a relationship, when you're not having that sexual connection that you would like that Dr. Cheryl is going to walk you into so beautifully and gracefully. But also if you're single, it's a way to close that gap if you are not happily single or consciously single, which is probably 90% of us would like to be in a relationship, right? And then maybe get us over some of those fears, as well as finally some actionable steps to create more of everything that we're talking about in this conversation. So I want to just get a little background on you. You have a PhD. My goodness. What did you study your PhD in? Uh, my PhD is in clinical psychology with something of a specialty in couples and sexuality. And I say something, Michelle, because to my absolute uh, amazed and aghast discovery, you can easily become a couples therapist and never get any training in sex. So I actually went to San Francisco to do postdoctoral work to get more training in sexuality. And I went into the whole field, I like to say, Okay, it's kind of embarrassing, but imagine me, I'm 12, 13 years old here on little Vancouver Island in what was at that time a logging town, like, you know, 5,000 people. And I am madly, desperately, completely, and very hornily in love with Sean Cassidy. <laughs> Where Who wasn't? Oh my God, the sexiest hardy boy ever. Oh, sure. Ron, Ron, my dad still teases me that apparently once I broke out in hives when I was watching the Hardy Boys. I believe it was repressed sexual tension. So I I introduced that because I hope it can all make us laugh. And I challenge everybody listening. And I'm going to ask you in a sec, who was your first like major celebrity crush when you were really young? Who was it for you, Michelle? Oh my goodness. So Sean Cassidy for sure was a crush, but believe it or not, and this actually stuns me to recall it, but at like 12, 13, when I was waking up to that energy in me, it was Michael Jackson. Wow. I know. What? Cool. And so thank you for that because it may seem like a diversion from how I got a PhD in couples therapy, but it's totally not. Because here I am at at age 12 thinking Sean Cassidy's my soulmate. I wrote these erotic, explicit love letters to him. Thank goodness there was no uh, social media or internet back then because they'd come back to haunt me. I'm sure his assistant shredded them or, you know, probably put me on the stalker list. I don't know. (laughs) The point of it is I longed for this idea of ultimate sexual emotional communion, love that would last a lifetime, happily ever after. And without risking a lawsuit, can I just say we should all sue Walt Disney for the whole happily ever after soulmate man. I am so with you. It turns out, spoiler alert, Sean Cassidy was not my soulmate. <laughs> so um, that really led to weirdly, I was kind of a weird kid, a lifelong, so far at 56, still going on strong, seeking to figure out why relationships are so difficult when they seem like they should be really easy. You know, I'm fond of saying falling in love is easy. Staying in love takes mindfulness. Mm -hmm. What is it that so many couples, including a lot of the couples listening, a lot of the singles listening, if you reflect back on your last relationship, you can do that yourself, Michelle. You know, where were we unhappy and why? 
what are our expectations? What are we longing for? And, and I'm really fond of saying it's a bit of tough love, but all of us are in the wrong relationship if we're expecting our partner to make us happy all the time. Correct. And that's where I got into Buddhism. So I went into psychology to figure out the mind, emotions, relationship. Why do we suffer? Why are we as, you know, privileged North Americans, so many of us in the top five, three, two percent of the planet for creature comforts, et cetera. Why are we so freaking miserable in our romantic relationships? Why is it so difficult? Mm-hmm. And, you know, clinical psychology gave me some answers. I'm very grateful for that. But then I, you know, grabbed a backpack and went to India for eight, nine months because I still didn't have enough understanding of the fundamental working of the human mind, how we create our own suffering with our expectations, our denial of reality, wanting reality to be different. And that's where the Buddhist piece came in. And that's a whole other crazy story for another day, but it involves things like almost stepping on a cobra when I was in silent walking meditation and not seeing the cobra, being attacked by a premenstrual monkey and then having to get rabies shots. It was a fun time. The spiritual (laughs) path is freaking dangerous, girl. (laughs) Tell me about it. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon, the whole, you know, even if you're not in a relationship, this will still work for you too. It's very interesting, and I don't know if you notice this, in the personal development community, which is not the biggest community on the planet, but it's a fairly sizable, very engaged community. A lot of seekers, right? Many accomplished single women, probably over 40, and not in relationship. Yeah. And, and that's me too right now. And so when I think about my last relationship, I was like, oh, if you're talking about thrill, intimacy, and sensuality, the last one had tons of thrill, Tons of sensuality, but zero intimacy. The one before that, only intimacy, almost just friends, but no thrill and no sensuality. So there's not even a common theme. So how do we begin to get access to how we can make our own selves happy and create our own happily ever after and bring Buddha into our own bedroom before we start to go into a relationship? Yeah, there we go. Michelle, preach. Okay. Uh, first of all, just for the benefit of the listeners, Michelle's uh, you know, so beautifully and, and in a tremendous vote of confidence has, has read the book and she's referring to some words I just want to contextualize for Thank people. You. I call these the three keys to passion and something that I know one of our mentors, Michelle, that we share, which is Tony Robbins, talks about a lot is if you don't measure it, you can't master it. That's the Tony Robbins quote. So what does that mean? Well, we're in a relationship, those of us listening that are, or we're not in a relationship like those of you listening that, that are not yet and would potentially like to be. Do we even know what the building blocks of an extraordinary, passionate, lifelong relationship are? The answer for almost everybody is no, including if I were to pull, I don't know, random 25 couples therapists tomorrow, I guarantee that they give a really lengthy, confusing answer about what leads to great relationships. So I've boiled it down to the best of my ability to what I call the three keys to passion, the passion triangle. Why a triangle? Because apparently my smart engineer buddies tell me that a triangle is the most solid shape to build a strong foundation on. So I call these intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. I want to describe them very briefly so people can come along for the ride here. When I use the word intimacy, I think of it as the base of the triangle. Uh, And I'm not using intimacy as a euphemism for sex the way sometimes in the English language we do. 
I'm talking about that sense of knowing and being known, the sense of your partner being inside your soul, having you back, being the first person you call when something bad happens and the first person you call when you've got something fun to share. Mm -hmm. Everything conflict resolution, learning to communicate deeply about the freaking scary stuff, the repeating arguments, learning to see your partner's perspective and not have it all be about ego. What John Gottman, a wonderful couples therapist, calls marital friendship or relational friendship, common law, gay, straight, trans, uh, even consensual non-monogamy or polyamory. I don't care where you're coming from. If you're attempting to deeply love and be sensual and sexual with, with one or more people in a consensual way, this applies to you. So intimacy is what a lot of marital and couples therapy is about. Let's help dismantle your arguments. Let's help you understand each other. Well, okay, but that can describe a friendship. That can describe your relationship with your brother or sister. We need the next two sides of the passion triangle, the other two keys to uh, passion, thrill and sensuality. And thrill, that was the Sean Cassidy stuff. That's the, we all feel it Almost all of us feel it most of the time when we're falling in love. Butterflies in in the chest, uh, that sense of lust, that sense of horniness, obsessively thinking about the person you're dating or waiting to have a date with. Oh, my goodness. In the age of online dating, we have a (laughs) tremendous amount of thrill based on a single email exchange. We haven't even met the human yet. And thrill is very easy in the beginning. It's biochemical, partly it's projections, it's your attachment issues from childhood, it's oxytocin, norepinephrine, dopamine, it's mimics cocaine. That's why it's so damn addicting and brilliant. And it changes. In fact, the biochemistry of falling in love, uh, according to science, mimics the biochemistry of obsessive compulsive disorder. That's why we literally can't stop thinking about him and him or her for about three to six, maybe 12 months. Then that biochemistry changes. The caveman has caught the cave woman or vice versa. And we start nesting, decorating the cave and the chemistry changes to contentment. Thrill is very hard to keep alive for the vast majority of good, positive couples who love each other. That's the really difficult one to reignite in a long-term relationship. So we've got intimacy, thrill, and then the last one, sensuality, everything erotic, everything physical, all five senses from holding hands to, you know, having a secret glance across the room to the most wild, crazy, taboo, dark energy, goddess, lust, can I say, fucking our brains out, based in spirit, based in love, because you can have a random hookup and think you're letting go sexually. But if you're not having your heart and soul also available to that person in the intimacy and thrill realm, that's actually pretty disconnected sex. Even if the genitals have a good time, I like to help couples do something really rare, which is be able to make love and wildly fuck. Sorry for the language, but it it grabs an energy that other words don't with the same person. When we think of affairs, when we think of porn addiction, when we think of splitting off our, what I call dark sexual energy, and I mean that as a beautiful thing, a source of power, like yin yang dark, the dark illuminating the light. That's a place where You know, I think North Americans believe we're really sexually liberated. We are so sexually repressed. We Mm -hmm. really are. You see it in, you know, politician scandals and, you know, all this stuff. People are shutting off their dark sexual energy as taboo or bad or my sweetheart couldn't handle it. All sorts of story making. And they're not able to begin to incorporate it into the intimacy and the thrill. So there's a tour de force, I think, between... As I started, you know, if you can't measure it, how do you master it? So one 
of the things people might want to do, I'm sure it'll be in your show notes, but they can take a free less than 10 minutes quiz to kind of rate their current relationship on where they're strong or weak in those three keys to passion. It can be really fun to rate yourself these days. Uh, you can rate it based on a past relationship. You've just done that beautifully now. You talked about your two uh, most recent major relationships, Michelle, being unbalanced on this passion triangle. So imagine in your next relationship, because I'm putting that on your mind stream and the universe's mind stream. Hello, him or her. We're calling you in for Michelle because my goodness, I tell you, if I was single and swung that way, I'd ask you on a date. <laughs> well, if I was single and I swung your way, I would try to steal you from your man. But no, I'm very straight. There you go. All three for you, for everybody listening, for myself, my sweetheart and I have to tune up our triangle. Are you kidding? Okay, I'd be so a liar to say I to talk about here. that. You yeah. guys met, you said when you were 49, is that correct? 49. And I actually don't tell this story publicly, but I'm going to because we're sister soulmates already. Ooh. I was asked, I, I write for magazines, I write columns and whatnot as well. And I was asked to write an online dating article, do's and don'ts, which I'd written before, but I was about five years out of date on the newer sites at that time. I was sort of old school. I knew match.com, eHarmony, and things had really moved on. So I went on to do a little bit of research. So I was more you know, clear in what the various sites around here were. And you can imagine where this is going. I was happily single had chosen to be single for about eight years at that point for the first time in my life in my late forties, really fulfilled without that ache that started with Sean Cassidy and went through my, all my relationships ache for happy ever after ache for someone to fulfill and complete me. I wouldn't have conceptualized it that way at the time, but with wisdom looking back, I can see it that way. So I was just happily not dating and really content, but I'm on this site. And in order to check the site out, do a quick Google to see what kind of partners were out there. So I had a sense of the quality, the type of, of, of man, I had to quickly set up a free account. So I used a single photo. I'm a pretty good with words. I'm a pretty good writer. So I you know, spent five minutes writing a kind of cute, funny profile, put it out there so I could then search and get a sense of the men so I could speak to it with um, good research when I wrote about it. The next day I went in to, to delete my free profile because I wasn't interested in dating and boom, there was five guys who'd asked to you know connect with me and I read their profiles. I'm like, oh my Lord, I would go on a first date with all five of these guys. I wasn't used to that quality of leads, you know? So the rest is freaking history. I put my now husband off for months because I, was, I wasn't planning to date. So I'm like, oh, I'm busy. I'm teaching a meditation retreat and I'm going here. And, and, and the other guys were pissy and like, well, why are you on the site if you're not available? I'm like, delete. And he was, you know, that's totally cool. You seem like a dynamic woman. I think you're really interesting. I'd love to get to know you. No pressure. Oh, oh my favorite awesome. words to hear from a man. Oh, my goodness. No pressure. Oh, my goodness. So we went and, and I made a little pledge to myself then. I said, okay, Cheryl, I'm going to go on five dates and then I'm going to shut this nonsense down and go back to being happily single. <laughs> so I had seen four different guys and had to finish that fifth. And so I wrote him the night before because I had to take someone to the airport at 6 a.m. And I said, hey, want to meet me for breakfast at seven, which was kind of a, you know, no. And he said, sure, I'll be there. I'm like, damn it. So met him for breakfast. You couldn't cut him loose. You couldn't sort him out. It's like, no one's going to meet for a 7 a.m. breakfast. There's nothing sexy about that. And he said yes, and that was it. And it was a four-hour breakfast. And, you know, uh, we've been together about six, seven years, and we got married uh, a year and a half ago. And it still isn't perfect. And he's definitely not my soulmate. And he doesn't make me happy all the time. And we're keeping it real, and it's fantastic because – the level of growth when you're willing to tackle romantic, erotic, 
vulnerable relationship as a path. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes, you will get challenged. I was, my mind states were a lot easier, Michelle, when I was single. Yeah. I was a lot less triggered. I was a lot more in control and I was pretty damn happy. I'm a different kind of happy now. But if you want your stuff to come up, your challenges to come up, I challenge all of us to take the risk of deep relationship, including maybe recommitting to the one we're, we're with if it's turbulent and difficult to say, what are you here to teach me and what am I here to teach you? Beautiful. You just said that he is not your soulmate and the relationship is not always happy. Totally get the latter. But the former, why, why did you mention that he's not your soulmate? Yes, because nobody is. That's back to that. If you want somebody uh-huh. to be happy all the time, you're with the wrong person. So hold so there's on. There's soulmate myth that there's one or there's a person or destiny or meant to be. I like to bust that. It doesn't always make me popular, but I like to so soulmate. But I'm so happy that you're saying this because I think there are a lot of women, especially that listen to this show, including myself, that have held out, right, for that equivalent of the feelings that you had at 12 for Sean Cassidy your whole life. And it doesn't really show up that way. And then you have to, like, look for that needle in a haystack, so to speak. And it's just overwhelming and it can make you feel more alone and less worthy than ever. So you're dispelling this whole myth of like, hey. There's no soulmate and you can be happily ever after if you take care of your own heart and you are willing to do the work that's deeply confrontational within an intimate erotic relationship. Yes. And as I'm fond of saying, don't change your mate, change your mind. Because with our mate that they're not doing what we want them to do. And how many obsessive conversations do we have? I still have them. I'm not perfect. I'm not fully enlightened yet about, you know, oh, if only he, she would do this or why didn't they do that? You know, it it comes back to Buddhism or mindfulness or secular meditation that the place of peace, grace and openness is in our own mind. You can use the word soul, spirit, whatever words work for our listeners here. But nobody but nobody can make you happy or unhappy. It's your mind's reaction to reality that is where your peace and love and joy live or your distress, discontent and pain live. So the soulmate does, you know... (laughs) I like to say the Buddha ruined love songs for me because love songs are like, I'm everything I am because you love me. Oh my God, that's a terrible, terrible formula for mental health. I'm everything I am because you love me. Well, if you change your mind or, or have an aneurysm and decide you don't like me anymore, literally I am nothing now. Exactly. (gasps) Also mentioned that you, what's your husband's name? My husband's name, I don't usually say publicly, but uh, we'll call him, we'll call him Dean. Okay, let's call him Dean. So you said that you guys also have to tune up your sensuality and your thrill. So what would be some examples of how some of my listeners who are in a relationship that they're going to recommit to, right? Changing their own mind, not trying to change their mate. I'm loving this so far. How can they tune up their relationship? And then of course, we'll figure out how to apply this to the singles listening as well. Yeah, 100%. Two words, people don't like them. They're not very romantic, but schedule sex. Schedule sex. So uh, <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I had the pleasure to teach for Tony at his relationship program last fall, I co-taught with another sexuality expert that I'd never met before. We were thrown together. We beautifully just did this thing together. It was amazing. But did it happen to be giant? Yeah, it was giant. I love giant. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that pairing would be yeah. so valuable for the attendees. Okay. It was beautiful, but we didn't know each other's story. We hadn't had time to find out. So we're on stage, we're teaching a workshop, we're working with couples. And at the same moment, we both say, and you really need to schedule sex. And we both say, the two sex experts schedule sex. What aren't you just horny 
all the time? Aren't you like jumping your partner every minute of every day? Cause like you're these embodied, gorgeous, erotic goddesses who have fewer hangups than the rest of us. We're like, no, we're in long-term relationships. We can get complacent. We can get busy with the kids. We can get busy with life. We can get in our dang head. And so I like to reassure everybody listening, you can think of your last relationship, the one you're in, or even your own masturbatory solo sexuality. Desire is a very transient thing. Sexual desire and arousal. I'm going to throw some research at people that is so important that most people don't know. There are two types of sexual desire, and we really see this show up in a long-term relationship and or as we age, as our own hormonal levels change, our own interrelation with our body and our perhaps self-image change. To simplify, responsive desire and spontaneous desire. The kind of desire, arousal, or horniness we're all looking for, we all love, we all it's juicy and fantastic, I'm a huge fan, is spontaneous desire. I see you, I want to rip your clothes off. Right. Uh, you kiss me and I'm on fire, I'm, I'm wet, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. hard to be, to be yeah. clear. I love it, it's fantastic, but it's very clear from research that that becomes very rare in long-term relationships. Occasionally, you've got a little, I just need to jump you now, and you both go, oh, wow, that was like our old mojo, sweetheart, but much more often for basically close to every longer-term relationship, and by that, I mean a year or two or longer. I don't mean 30 years. I mean, anything after that first thrill, crazy, falling in love, hormonal cocktail slows down. Mm -hmm. Then we want to cultivate what's called responsive desire. There's a researcher called Rosemary Bassan, sexuality lab here in BC, who did a study of long-term couples. And she found that the majority of long-term couples start making love from a place of what she calls sexual neutrality. What does that mean? It means neither of them are turned on when they start to be sexual. They start to be sexual for response responsive desire, meaning the desire starts to respond to something else. That can be the decision that we haven't had sex in 10 days. Let's go to bed. There's no horniness on either side. There's a choice to become sexual. And then, you know, the touching, the lube, the licking, the kissing, the the whatever, watching your favorite TV show while you're naked can lead to desire. But the painful thing, Michelle, is almost all couples I talk to about this don't know this. They don't know that they are normal. If there is one phrase I say that relieves the most pain in in couples and singles when they look at their old relationships or what they want in the future, it's you're normal. It's normal that you don't make love all that often anymore. It's normal that if you're waiting around to be swept into lust, you're not going to have very much sex back to on the stage, Jaya and I rolling in laughter when we both at the same time say we schedule sex and the audience is shocked. And we were able to bust the myth that if we don't say every Tuesday or, you know, Tuesday and Friday is like sex date, we might go a week or two or three or maybe longer without making love at all. So again, people say, but Dr. Cheryl, scheduling sex isn't romantic. And I say, you know, it's not romantic never having sex. There you go. And I love that because you're creating it based on the research that you found, which is that once you have it scheduled, right? And now you're in that energy, even if you're not quite there yet, you'll begin to respond to that commitment or that intention. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you go to the gym or work out? Well, pre-COVID five, six days a week, soul cycle. During the pandemic, bike rides and power walks. And every single time, do you spontaneously feel like going to the gym? Oh, 90% of the time, I, I don't. But you exactly. never finish wishing you hadn't started, which is probably a lot like sex. Exactly. So I say, you know, it's like going to the gym. You don't want to go, but you know you'll feel good after. You go and do it, and you're never sore you went. 
So, so you know, good. That, not very romantic, but keeping it real. You you're never sore. You went just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alison Armstrong is mm-hmm. also a dear friend of mine and she's been on this podcast. And I know that she was also one of the keynote speakers at Tony she Robbins relationship yeah. program. Tony and Allison have had this ongoing conversation that I heard from them. And I'm just curious what your two cents are, being that you are the Buddhist psychologist, that a healthy relationship with love and passion, right? That polarity is alive, that they're having sex on average twice a week in a long-term relationship. Do you see that in your research? Is that what you also talk about? And if not, why? And if, if yes, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's great. And thank you for that. When we talk about, you know, my research, this would be me looking at other researchers research. I haven't done that particular research myself, but I would say that's a, that's a real overestimate. I would think so is, yeah, the, the, the research is, is really, it's really difficult to get people to tell the truth about their, their love relationship. So these sort of statistics come from something like maybe uh, cold calling 200 people saying, are you in a relationship? How long have you been together? How often do you have sex a week? And no one wants to admit the truth. So they did a study like that in Canada. (laughs) I mean, I'm Canadian, as you mentioned, about five to eight years ago, and it was all over the news here because they interviewed couples just on the phone, which means tons of people just hang up. So you get a self-selected bunch of people to start with. It's not great research. And um, apparently people in Newfoundland were having more sex than anybody else in Canada. So I'm like, a, let's move to Newfoundland. But B, <laughs> those buggers are lying. They're like, oh, oh, yes, we have, you know, we're having sex, you know, six times a week or whatever they're saying. I can't do a new P- uh, accent. <laughs> but I would say, with all due respect to those two extraordinary people, that is a much bandied about incorrect statistic. We don't have correct statistics, but I would say based on the clinical research, the hundreds of couples I've worked with personally, the thousands I've had the pleasure to work with my online programs and in larger teaching venues, in a long-term relationship, I'd say twice a month is probably an actual average. I don't have the data to back that up. Again, it's pretty hard to get. You'd really need, if you're going to do the right research, you need cameras in every bedroom in North America and proper research. So it said that a lot. Now, aspirationally, yes, Allison, yes, Tony, twice a week is a wonderful thing to schedule. Yeah, there you go. Make intentional to choose. But if you're waiting for that spontaneous desire and horniness, it's highly unlikely unless you're in, you know, three or 4% of an unusual cohort, yay, ballyhoo, yay for them. I used to be that person. Then I hit menopause. Things changed a little, as Allison also talks about. So I would say, do not beat yourself up. Here we're to my, you know, most reassuring phrase, you're normal. If you're making love once a month, twice a month, if you haven't had sex in, in two, three, four, five months, I had several couples in my program this, in this February, one hadn't had sex in seven years and they were only like 40. They loved each other. They both had masturbation lives. They masturbated twice a week, but they had just lost the ability to talk about sex, to find their way to each other, to make it intentional. Mm, I love that. You know, this is such an important thing to talk about because see, it's such a funny thing. We hear things and we hear from someone on a stage. So immediately their platform gives them this heightened level of credibility. And we're like, that's how it's got to be. And then you live with this concept that's just a fantasy and not even probably measured in reality and real research, not to say that they didn't have any data to back up what they said and what they believe. But I remember hearing that and I remember thinking, I don't know anyone of my friends that are in long-term relationships that are having passionate erotic sex or even sex 
twice a week, right? Most of my friends have kids and say, we're lucky if it happens twice a month. So I'm really grateful that you shed light on that from your perspective. Um, If anything, to make my listeners feel like you're not alone. However, here's some ideas for tuning up, schedule the sex, get it done. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, especially before we wrap, because not enough people are having this conversation and you and I were chatting briefly about it before I hit record, which is around the dark and the light, right? And you touched on this earlier, pun intended, right? But it's like, but it's like, can we just talk about how messed up in general, unconsciously, most humans are about sexuality and how they're afraid to acknowledge that they like that and that they're turned on by this and how those kinds of conversations can be a game changer for the intimacy of a relationship, much less the thrill and the sensuality. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to embrace the darkness in us, straight, gay, single, in a relationship, it doesn't matter. Absolutely, because in your solo or masturbatory sexual life, whether you're partnered or unpartnered, that's a beautiful, safe place to start to play with what I call dark sexual energy or dark sensual energy. And there I mean dark as in raw, primal, beautiful source power, yin yang, the dark illuminating the light, the dark eroticism illuminating the sweetest, most gentle lovemaking where I weep because my soul and your soul become one. Mm. That's the light. And the dark is fucking your brains out with raw animal joy, which is one of the most brave things any human being can do with someone you also love. So yes, indeed. I've got four words for us. If anybody's doubting how universal that raw energy is, you may not be experiencing it in yourself. You may have repressed it. You may be frightened of it. You may have been shamed away from it, but the four words are 50 shades of gray. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) One of the most poorly written books I've ever read, because I am a writer, but a great story. Mm. I wish, I wish I'd thought of it first, which Mm. is to speak to especially to women. If you think about that, again, I think it's a rather silly series of books, but I also think it's profoundly important that millions and millions and millions and millions of people read that book. Because essentially, if we boil it down, it's about a young woman learning to unleash her dark, raw, erotic energy, but in a relationship as bizarre as it is, and Christian needs some therapy, but that's okay. But basically he worships her. He keeps her safe. He adores her. He's not using her. And that speaks to research. This is older research from decades ago. And it essentially was research on what is the most common female sexual fantasy. Now this is us in the privacy of our mind and our fingers and our toys and our lube and ourself. What is our number one masturbation, private sexual fantasy? And it's what's called a ravishment fantasy. Mm. In that fantasy, some gorgeous, if I'm going to pitch it hetero, but of course it would be the other way if, you, if you're a gay or a transgendered woman. But for the ease of simplicity, I'll use hetero language here. She is alone. She's, and this is her fantasy. She's alone in the house and some dark, gorgeous, masculine guy comes into her house, but there's no fear. There's no sense of fear. It's just that he's in there and he's gorgeous. He's wildly attractive. She's kind of freaked out. She's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, you're going to do this. You're going to get on your knees and you're going to do this to me. You're so beautiful. You're so gorgeous. I can't wait to F you. This is her fantasy. It's not coming from anywhere else, but her inner desire. And I don't know that it'd be exactly the same in 2020, but what that was interpreted as in the way I interpret it as a sexual therapist is the woman needed the fantasy of him making me do it in order to unleash her dark energy. Mm. So he made her be 
a gorgeous, dirty little girl. Arr! But it's her name. But she didn't have the freedom in her own fantasy to say, I'm going to be like crazy and an erotic sex goddess. She's going to be, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. But if you're going to make me. <laughs> totally. Oh, my God, this is so good. I know. So hence, in the, you know, 50 Shades of Grey, you know, whatever, it taps into, I wish I, and this is male, female, gay, or straight, could feel liberated. And maybe that external structure would help me guilt free because in that fantasy the woman's guilt free it's not her fault she did it he asked her to and she had to Mm -hmm. she doesn't have to say oh that's gross what's wrong with me or i shouldn't find that a turn on or Or initiate that's a big thing too to want to really own your dark energy but like uh uh-uh i'm not gonna initiate but i will i will respond (laughs) it's the same thing so however we find our way in i like to say to people this is one of the most beautiful powerful sources of small p power as in empowerment as in groundedness freedom joy and to share that if and when you're ready with a partner is the most brave and intimate act you can possibly do and i think one of the biggest problems in modern romantic sexual relationship is the lack of ability to bring those two things together the intimate the emotional the we parent our kids when i have the sniffles you bring me your homemade chicken soup i walk around in you know bunny slippers sniffling and blowing my nose that's a beautiful part of long term love but can you transition into and now <laughs> nice festivities. I'm going to step out of bunny slippers and into, I don't know, thigh high black boots yes. and be eight. That might be one of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to be <laughs> able to play, to play in the dark power and the light power, to be a goddess, to be a mother, to be a lover, to be a friend, to be sensitive and compassionate. And that's where we get into the challenge and the beauty and the work I try to bring to couples is how do we make that intentional? How do we measure where we're strong and weak? In uh, my online program, I take couples in the last week, because we've got to build them up till they're ready for it, to where they script a dark sexual fantasy and share it with their partner. And, you know, and that, that's a very delicate process because what I want might be something that you don't want to try. And how can we hold that with love and grace and say, I don't think I can explore that particular thing, but we could go here. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, listen to how intimate, how vulnerable and how loving it is. If I'm going to share that tender little piece of me with you and say, this is something I've been afraid to tell someone that turns me on. And then sometimes the partner's like, oh, is that all? Heck, let's do it. But whatever the response is, it's the act of here's another piece of me. Can you hold it gently, whether or not we choose to actually manifest it as a sexual exploration together? Beautiful. What if your partner says no? I will not do that because their own sort of erotic creature is also so suppressed. Yeah. And thank you for keeping it real because of course that can happen. And when I take uh, couples through the process, I try to build in safety. So there's ways to receive your fantasy where I won't say, ew, or, oh my God, you're sick or no, I don't want to do that. But to say, you know, thank you so much for trusting me with that information. I don't think I want to explore that with you, but I I so respect your bravery to, to share that with me. Can you share with me another one next week? Um, and we can look at that. But just in there is the vast vulnerability of being real. So we're so afraid that there's something wrong with us. Yes, exactly. Because fundamentally, you know, the top two human fears are that we're not enough. And if we're not enough, we'll never be loved. Which brings me to a follow-up question to all of this. Because I, I think that most women I know 
deal with a lot of body dysmorphia, a lot of body image shaming, right? And especially of a certain age or having had children or surgeries or postmenopausal or whatever the things. And so what do you have to say for those women who are like a little hung up on, I can't unleash my dark erotic creature or go for what I really want or create this arc of the the triangle in my relationship because I don't think my body is desirable. You know, there's an old joke, and again, it's a hetero joke, but I suspect it to some degree might cross, uh, maybe more of a hetero one, but it's like the woman is like, oh my God, he's going to see me naked. Will he notice my cellulite? I, you know, I might have a few straggler hairs where I don't want there to be. Oh my God, what does he think? And the guy's like, it's a woman and she's (laughs) naked. I'm so happy. Right. But in a beautiful way, like, you know, that to me is not a hack on men. It's it's an elevation of men that they're like, oh, my God, you're beautiful. And this is amazing. And, you know, as we've heard so many men say, why don't you see how beautiful you are? So I wish we could offer a quick fix and we both know we can't. But uh, one of the things I like to suggest, it's hardly a novel idea, but, you know, learn to dance in your own home. Uh, When you're alone, blast the music, put on some, you know, sensual beat. I like that song Smooth by Santana. I play that in my workshops. It's like, and just learn to move, learn to unleash anyone who's done a Tony event. One of the great things is, you know, as Joseph says, I think he said it on your podcast, uh, Michelle, but, you know, shake your ass, like learn to move, whether it's through yoga, whether it's definitely dance, like learn to learn to find body pleasure where no one's watching. They will dance like no one's watching, wear something maybe flowy, something that brushes against your legs, shave your legs so they're super smooth, mm-hmm. like literal sensuality, the senses. You might not get erotically turned on, but you're sensually turned on. The more you can free up, sleep naked, mm-hmm. get rid of the fuzzy socks and the, you know, the flannel t-shirt that comes down to your knees, please, <laughs> unless you're camping alone with your dog because the dog doesn't care. But more so you can feel like get some beautiful soft sheets, sleep naked in them, especially if you're solo, sleep naked. Just learn to enjoy the touch. Have more showers, buy more glorious soaps. Mm. Just the like, oh my goodness. I'm like, you know, we can see each other on screen and you see what I'm doing with my hands and with my body. I'm just like. You're in it. You're luxurious. Sexual pleasure is our birthright. Children, oh my goodness, put a two-year-old in their diaper in front of uh, any sort of music and they shake their ass and they there's joy. They let go. They open their arms. Their heart centers open. That's our birthright. That's our natural state. We learn to shut it down. So those of us that have shut it down, sometimes, and let's also keep it real, through trauma, through abuse and some very dark things, sometimes just through societal norms of what's beautiful and we have no particular trauma or shame but we've incorporated not good enoughness to reclaim, you know, probably a lot of your listeners are also parents or they're around children, reclaim the natural joy of the body, Mm -hmm. the natural joy of touch, of caress, of movement. That's the best place to start. It can take you so far. So good. I actually slowed my breathing down as soon as you started describing what could be an access point. And yes, we've heard these things before, but there's sometimes an access in which you're present now and you can hear it in a new way and you can really take it on. So that's what I want. Anyone listening who's got some body shaming going on, just let it go. Free yourself up. Do it in the privacy of your own home, right? Slow things down. Move your hips. Shake the ass. It's beautiful work. And let's issue a small challenge to your listeners to do this today when you're listening to this podcast. Yes. 
while you're listening or after, just put on any old song and then, you know, send Michelle a social media message or something saying, I did it and this is what I discovered. Like, let's take it into action, out of concept, out of like, yeah, that's a great idea. I should do that. And it ends up on the endless tyrannical to-do list. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, it would be so amazing if you are brave and bold, which is, you know, is all I try to cultivate in here on this show, then by all means do it. Do a little Instagram story or Facebook story and tag. Yeah, and I'll button. tell you what, we've talked about giving a couple books away and let's do that. Whoever does this to Michelle, Michelle's going to pick at least two people and I'm going to send them a personalized copy of Buddha's Bedroom as a as a, as a an acknowledgement of taking action and, awesome. and stepping out of possibility. I love it. Okay, so the challenge is on, y'all. You got seven days within the time that you've listened to this episode to take a little 15-second video clip of you shaking your ass, moving your body, getting in touch with your sensuality. Send it to me, either private message or if you want to go public and tag both of us. Where can we find you on Instagram, by the way? <laughs> you can't, sister. I'm I think so. Okay. No, I Tag us on Facebook. Yeah, but you can still tag me on Instagram. You guys got me right at Michelle Sorrow. And then that way uh, you'll be sent directly from uh, Dr. Cheryl's publisher, Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. Y'all, this book is so good. I'm getting the chills as I'm saying it. The foreword is from one of my favorite authors, Jack Cornfield and his wife, Trudy Goodman, both have PhDs. Jack wrote a book that I'm sure you're aware of, After... The Ecstasy, The Laundry. Yes, indeed. So good. And that's basically like the takeoff, I think, of Buddha's bedroom. It's like it makes so much sense. What a pleasure to have you on. I feel like I want to have you on a million more times because there are so many things that we need to discuss. (laughs) And uh, it's just your wealth of inspiration. And you just keep it so real. And I love the fact that you're just able to just give it to us straight, fierce, and be fearless about it. Because I know that you're on a mission. Can you share your mission with my listeners? I can. My mission is to awaken the planet one lover, one couple at a time. And mm. I literally mean awakened in the sense that word is used in Buddhism. It's the English translation of the word Buddha is awakening or budding or unfolding. So that would mean unfolding worldwide compassion, worldwide mm. acceptance, and worldwide love and wisdom. Mm. through the process of uh, being a great lover with yourself, with someone else, making love to a partner and making love to the world. God, that's so good. You know, I've asked 100 guests since this show started, how would you define an awakened soul? But your mission actually was just the embodiment of that answer. Wow. Thank you. Right? Beautiful thing to say. So beautiful. (laughs) Oh, it was so beautiful. Where can, aside from picking up Buddha's Bedroom, which again, I will share the link on my website at fireandsoulpodcast.com. You will see it listed in the show resources. Also some other ways to connect with you, but in case somebody doesn't want to wait and they want to like search you on their phone right now, where's the best place to reach you, Dr. Cheryl? Old school, my website, my name, uh, com, and you can sign up for free weekly, what I call Love Bites, which are little five minute videos. Videos I send out right to your email box with uh, sex tips, love tips, actionable things you can put into process right away. You can also take the quiz we mentioned off the top. If you want to go, okay, okay, honey, how are we doing on our passion triangle and what are we going to do about it? And uh, I also offer an online intensive program in the best way, immersive program with coaching and one-on-one with me for couples who want to create extraordinary passion that lasts a lifetime. And you can learn about that on my website or through, through joining and following me, but mainly reach out, send me an email, tell me what's up. How can I help? 
Awesome. And the website is drcherylfraser.com. And again, I will also add that link in my show resources so that you know how to spell both the first and the last name. Super important. But in case you don't want to wait, C-H-E-R-Y-L-F-R-A-S-E-R, Fraser. So good to have you on. It was an honor. I learned a lot. I got inspired. I want to just like claim my erotic creature, slow her down, free her up, right? Stop being afraid to be in the intimate relationship and create the triangle of my dreams for myself so that I can have that beautiful expression of a, of a relationship to enjoy it with. Yes. And I know so, so many of my listeners, listeners just got nuggets, right? How to also claim it in your own relationship year yes. and 20 years later. It's all possible if you just get conscious and brave enough to have these kinds of conversations. Yes. And it is not easy, but neither is anything else of significance any of us ever achieve. And when you manifest your next partner, just be aware he's not going to be perfect. You've told me you prefer he's. That's why I use that pronoun. He's not going to be perfect. He's going to be perfectly imperfect. Yes. And that's going to be a beautiful thing. Oh, well, when we do connect, maybe we'll have you back on and you can talk to both of us. I'll sort him out for you just like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, so grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fire and Soul podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at fireandsoulpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.